Why don't we start by reading our passage? It's on page 986 of your pew Bible. You may stand for the reading of God's word. And I will read for us 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and please join me in praying for our time. Father God, thank you for your word. We are blessed by our time spent together as a church family pouring over your word. May you cause it to come alive to us and in us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that your word may take root in our hearts and may bear fruit in our lives as we strive to live out our faith guided by your spirit to your glory to fulfill the purposes of your kingdom here on earth. In the name of your Son, Amen. So here we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He had visited them previously. He had preached to them a few times before unceremoniously being run out of town. What he preached was so controversial, so offensive to the local powers that they chased him away within just a few weeks. So he had feared that the church there, so new, so young in the faith, would wither and fall away from the faith, barely having had time to grow any roots at all. But to his great joy, Paul learned from Timothy that they were flourishing despite any persecution. So he pens this letter to express how thankful he is for them, for the encouragement to him that their steadfastness is and to encourage them in their faith. And after a, a quick break in last week's passage, Paul returns to expressing thanks this morning in the passage that we have. You can see that in verse 13, how our passage starts. And we also thank God constantly for this. Note that he directs his gratitude to God. But what is it that he's thankful for? He says that when you, the Thessalonians, received the word of God, which you heard from us, us being Paul and his delegation of missionaries, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So he's thankful that they received the word of God. It seems pretty straightforward, right? In today's sermon, I want to consider what it is that Paul refers to as the word of God. We'll start there, and then we'll move relatively quickly through some follow-up questions. 
And now maybe you feel like you already know exactly what the word of God is, so you're about to tune me out until I get to the good part. But hold on. I want to challenge your notion a little bit because this section is rich in insights into what the word of God is, is not, how you know you can trust it, and what its impact is on us. And as we think through this, it's my desire that it would drive all of us here all the more to the word of God. So, what exactly did the Thessalonians receive as the word of God? It seems like an obvious question until you start to think about it a little bit. You can read through the Bible and not give it a second thought. But when you pause for a second, you might think, wait, how did they receive the word of God before this letter that Paul sent them about receiving the word of God was written since the letter is part of the word of God? And then your brain starts to hurt, so you just move on quickly. But maybe let's not move on. Let's dwell on that a little bit. Obviously, Paul is not talking about what we most commonly refer to as the Word of God, this, the Bible. So, what is it? And I want us to understand it's an important um, aspect to, to have a clear understanding about what we're talking about. Because there are many different claims out there, and we need to be able to discern what is and what isn't the Word of God. After all, that's exactly what Paul is thankful for God for, that the church in Thessalonica is able to discern and receive God's word. So we should be able to do the same. So maybe let's start with the easy part, what the word of God is not. Well, it's not the word of men. We see that in verse 13, right? You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. There are many words of men. That's actually an understatement. With the advent of the internet, you can't stop men and women from spewing out endless reams of words onto the world. There are over 600 million blogs on the internet and more than 2 billion blog posts a year. We live amidst a cacophony of words of men, all vying for your attention and trying to drown out what you really need to hear. The bargain bins of bookstores are filled with words of men, absolutely littered. When I became a father, someone uh, with very good intentions gave me a book called Fatherhood, written by Bill Cosby. That didn't exactly age well. I don't really feel like taking any advice from him right now. You see, the words of men have a tendency to degrade rather rapidly. Consider the words of the philosopher and father of the French Enlightenment movement, Voltaire, who said, a hundred years from my birth, there will not be a Bible to be found on earth. He was born in 1694, well over 300 years ago. You see, the word of God endures. The ancient book remains as true and relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. It has not tarnished or blunted. It remains sharper than a two-edged sword. But the Word of God is not specifically this book, right? Not this physical book. It didn't float down from heaven like this. The front page of mine says that it was published in Illinois, and it was printed in China. It's a fair distance from heaven. Um, 
I love this book dearly, but this physical book is not sacred. If I dropped it in a puddle and it got all gross on the way home today, I would toss it and get a new one. So what is the Word of God? Well, in the time of the Old Testament, God spoke to men and women. He revealed his intentions and his meaning. He interpreted history, and he provided glimpses into historical events that would unfold for the purposes of his redemptive plan for mankind. And these words were inscripturated by the authors of the Old Testament, Moses and David and Solomon and the prophets. And then when Jesus was born, we're told he was the word made flesh, the word incarnated. And by his very life on earth, Jesus became the living, breathing word of God. By his perfect life, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, Jesus was the culmination, the fulfillment of all the promises God spoke to the prophets. And as part of his earthly ministry, Jesus, fully God, spoke to a select group of his disciples called the apostles, and he further revealed to them the word of God. And so the apostles and firsthand witnesses along, uh, passed along sorry, this word of God through their teachings to the churches, as Paul did with the church in Thessalonica. And that is what he is referring to in verse 13. Listen to how the apostle Peter puts this aspect of the word of God in 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament authors, including Paul and the other apostles and those who witnessed Jesus' ministry, captured the word of God as preached by Jesus, by the apostles. And they captured the events surrounding Jesus' ministry. And under the inspiration of God the Spirit, wrote these things down into letters and books, which we recognize as fully part of the inscripturated word of God, the Bible. And then, and then it was finished. Once there were no more surviving first-hand witnesses, There could be no more corroborated revelation, no more to be added, nothing to be removed. The word of God is not updatable. There's no version 2.0. It is a closed canon, 66 books, not 65, not 67. No new versions are revealed to anyone. There were other letters in the first, second, third century people claimed should be in the Bible. But they were examined, 
They were shown to be either fakes pretending to be written by an apostle or written by people who never witnessed any of the events for themselves, and they were safely kept out of the Bible. And you can trust what you read in your Bible today, that it's the same as what was originally written. We have far more surviving ancient copies of the Bible. And these copies, these manuscripts, date back to closer to the time of their original writing and are of higher quality than in any other ancient documents, whether religious or philosophical or poetry. I'm talking tenfold more than the works of Plato or Aristotle or of Homer, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. So don't let anyone shake your confidence in the Word of God. Most of what critics out there believe about the words of God being manipulated is garbage. It is crazy conspiracy theories, Dan Brown-level fantasy. So go ahead and compare the different translations. They are, they are all consistent. They are all very similar to the early Greek manuscripts and the Hebrew scrolls. The truth is that the biblical text has been far better preserved than any other ancient document, period. There are some great books you can read about this and the whole process if you're interested in knowing more. I recommend uh, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung or R.C. Sproul's Can I Trust the Bible is Short and Great. Note what Peter says. What we know as the Word of God was revealed to a group of people who all corroborated what they received. The Word of God is consistent. There are no contradictions. Nothing was revealed to one person that invalidated what was previously revealed to another. I say this because it's not true of all religious scriptures. Ron, for, for example, was supposedly revealed to Muhammad only, directly from Allah. No one else could corroborate. No questions are allowed. The Mormons believe Joseph Smith found golden plates in Manchester, New York. These plates supposedly update the Bible, contradict what was previously revealed, and no one is allowed to lay eyes on these plates. You just have to trust them that they're there and they're totally real. The Roman Catholic Church does the same thing without the pretense. They just place the authority of the church over the authority of the word. So the Pope unilaterally contradicts scripture whenever he likes. He adds to it, changes it. And it relies on your trusting the word of one man. Same goes for Buddha, Guru Nanak, any number of cult leaders. They're all the same. That's how you know it's not the word of God, but the word of men. When they tell you to blindly trust a man, there's no questions allowed, no corroboration, no witnesses, no consistency, no way. It's not the word of God. And the Thessalonians were not fooled. They clung to the true word of God. And that is truly something to be thankful to God for, as Paul is. So, first follow-up question, right? How? How did the Thessalonians recognize it as the word of God? It's, it's great that they did, 
But how did they? Was it their own investigative work? Were they extra smart? Well, no. <laughs> There's a hint in the end of verse 13 when Paul says, the word of God is at work in you believers. What does it mean that it is at work in believers? Well, the word of God is not static on a page. The word of God works. And so how does it work? Let's take a moment to think through this. Remember, we said the word of God was revealed over time. God spoke to men and women, the prophets, which gave us the Old Testament. The word of God took flesh, Jesus. And then Jesus spoke to the apostles. We got the New Testament. What is the thread throughout all of this? What flows through from the words spoken to the prophets, the words spoken by the prophets, and all the way to Paul's epistles, and all the words written in the Bible? Did you catch what Peter said at the end of the passage I read to you? God, um, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is truly Trinitarian. The work of the Trinity of God. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three fully one God. So who was present throughout the revelation of the Word of God? The third person of the Trinity was always present, the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is what empowers these words. Whether spoken, heard, written, or read, the Holy Spirit indwells them. They are not dead. They live. God's words are living and active because they are inseparable from God's Spirit. When God speaks, the Spirit is the very breath that carries His words. God's words are imparted, inscripturated, incarnated, but always for the purpose to reveal God. And God is actively involved in how the words are received. One of God's greatest purposes is his self-disclosure, and the Spirit accomplishes this, what Calvin calls the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. So how did the Thessalonians know that Paul was preaching God's word? The Spirit was at work in them to convict them of the truth of Paul's words. Part of the work of the Word of God is its self-revelatory power. God reveals himself to us from within us by convicting us of the truth of his Word. You could think of it as faith. So that leads to one more follow-up question, at least. How does... Paul know that they received the word of God. We get how the Thessalonians accepted Paul's preaching as the word of God. It was the work of the Spirit within them. But how does Paul know that they did? Well, let's think this through a little bit more. Think through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit never ceases to empower the word of God. So he did not stop there to merely work within the Thessalonians. The Spirit is at work within all believers. So he inspired the words Paul wrote down in this letter. He inspired the early church to include this letter into the canon of the Bible. And the Spirit continues to work through the readers of the Bible to this day who, is it, who accept it as the word of God. 
whether they read it in a bound paper Bible in the King James Version, on their phone in French or in a tract in Korean, the Spirit, the Word of God, is alive and active. And we do not want to interrupt the work of the Spirit. So we stay faithful to the Word of God. We do not change it. We do not remove from it or add to it. That's why here at Maple Avenue Baptist Church, we preach directly from the Word of God. Just as Paul preached to the Thessalonians, we deliver what we receive. Right here, the Word of God in each of our hands as we go through the passage, verse by verse, through the whole letter that God inspired Paul to write to the Thessalonians for all followers of Christ. God reveals himself in these pages that you and I may see him this morning as we exposit the word of God. Where the word of God is, the spirit of God is. God is present here right now among us, at work within us. I love this place so much. And that in and of itself is a work of the Spirit, right? Without the Spirit, none of this makes any sense. Without the Spirit, there would be no point in reading what random first century Israelites thought about the world. There'd be no reason to gather on a Sunday morning. There would definitely be no need to come and listen to what I have to say. And think about it. When unbelievers... Read these words. Those who have closed themselves off to the Spirit, all they see is ancient, dry, flat, empty words on a page. But to us, who are indwelled by the Spirit, these words are life-giving. They are an encouragement. They are our fuel. They are the breath of life that sustains our reborn hearts. They spur us on to grow in our faith from one degree of glory to the next. These words are at work within us. That's how Paul knows they receive the words of God for what they are, because it is plain for all to see. Timothy saw it, told Paul what he saw, and there's no doubt in anyone's mind. It can be observed. The Spirit is at work in them. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 13. It's at work with them. And that leads us to one more follow-up question. What is the impact of the Word of God? What is it that Timothy saw? What is the observable result of the Word of God at work within the believer? See verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. The Thessalonians started to behave in a familiar way. They started to live in a way other churches lived before them. Consider Isaiah's words. I'm so thankful for our time in Isaiah. I find it's almost unavoidable to end up in Isaiah when you're thinking through any of this. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. He is sharing God's words when he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth uh, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed 
in the thing for which I sent it. When the Thessalonians received the word of God, it started to change their behavior. They no longer were living for themselves. They started to live for God, aligning their will with God's will, aligning their purposes with God's purposes. They now have a purpose. There's a reason why this is so apparent, why it's so obvious. We all have this lack of purpose. We all have a longing to find a purpose. I think this is so relevant today because we still want to answer an important calling. We want to be part of something greater, something that matters. But in our environment where the news is jumping the shark every day, the world is spiraling out, it's so disorientating. What direction should I even be trying to give my life? What advice can I even give my kids? People are just deciding not to have kids at all, not to bother with marriage, not to bother with anything, just give in to opioids. It's bad, and it goes beyond just feeling lonely, feeling rudderless, although, of course, there's still that. Some of us have just strayed a little. Some are desperately lost. Some have just completely given up. The further a society drifts away from the Bible, the more susceptible it becomes to an epidemic of purposelessness. But remember that higher calling of your younger self, that yearning that was inside of you. Because here's the thing, you were created for something far greater. The world has been keeping something from you. They have been trying to hide who you really are from you, to tell you that this is all there is, but it's not. That yearning of your younger self is validated. You have been cre created for a far greater, greater life than this. You have been created for a far greater world than this. Of course, this world, this life, was never going to satisfy you. You were not made for this world. You were not made for this life. The one who created you knows exactly what he created you for. And he wants you to know him. And by extension, he wants you to know who you are. What you were created for for, what your purpose is, and he reveals it in his word. It's all in here. Open up your Bible and open up your heart and read and receive that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. As the word of God becomes at work within you, you will start to live your true life now in this world as you await the next. We just have to let go of this world and its empty promises and empty rewards. We can't be whatever we want to be. That was always a lie. And we have to let go, importantly, of the ways of this world. The sins we committed to try to get ahead, the sins we justified because they were supposed to fulfill us. 
If we turn away from those sins and surrender our living for this world over to Christ, then the word of God will become alive in us. The spirit of God will take that word and plant it deep into our hearts. And out of it, a new heart will burst to life and it will start to beat to the rhythm of God's purposes. From the inside out, it will give a thirst that can only be satisfied by living water, the incarnated word of God by Christ. It will give a hunger to know who we are, who created us, and what we were created for. And this is a hunger that can only be satisfied by eating the bread of life, feasting on the inscripturated word of God, the Bible. And the more we learn our true identity in Christ, the more we grow into the likeness of Christ, and the more we desire to live for the glorious promises of Christ and the purposes of God. Praise God. Now I know to some this all sounds a little fantastical. I understand if you're skeptical. We're all a little too sophisticated and grown up to simply accept this kind of notion of mystical power. But here's the thing. I mean, life came from somewhere, right? It didn't just evolve out of rocks, did it? We mentioned how God spoke to the prophets to reveal himself. But that's not where it started. The word of God existed even before God spoke to the prophets, before Moses, even before Adam. If God speaks a word and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? You better believe it does. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word of God was there in the beginning. So let's check in with the beginning. If you take a quick look at Genesis 1, the chapter, should be towards the front of your Bible. Um, just scan it and see how many times can you spot God said? I see it there in verse 3, verse 6, uh, verse 9. Okay, would you believe me it's there 10 times? I counted before. <laughs> um, it's there 10 times because God's word carries with it the power to create. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man. It is by the power of his word that God created us. That's why our life can only be fulfilled by living in the word according to the purposes for which he created us by the word. That's how Paul knows the Thessalonians received his preaching as the word of God, the same way any preacher knows if the word of God is taking root in the heart of his congregation. Because of the transformative power of the word of God, the church starts to behave like a church family. You can't get them to leave the foyer at the end of the service. Everybody's still hanging around wanting to talk with each other and share their burdens with each other. You start to see hospitality and generosity and care and help and joy in all circumstances. Joy at spending time together in fellowship, striving for the gospel, to make it known, to spread and share this incredible word of God 
the church starts to look an awful lot like the church here at Maple Avenue Baptist Church. The Spirit does not return empty. The Spirit does not allow our lives to wither away in traffic and drain out of us at the kitchen sink. The Spirit produces a bountiful harvest of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are evident, believe me, in this world. The fruit of the Spirit pop out at you like a jack-in-the-box. It's a beautiful sight to us. It's a beautiful sight to us. But to those outside, it looks very different. There's a secondary impact of the Word of God. There's the impact it has on the outside world. The second half of verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did. This is another way that Paul knew that the Thessalonians had genuinely received the word of God. It's opposition. Thessalonica, which is still the second largest city in Greece after Athens, was at the time of Paul's writing a prosperous multicultural port city, the capital of Macedonia with good Roman roads. So it was a hub for commerce. It attracted a lot of people from all over the region, many of them religious, of course. Most of them polytheists, just like the Romans and the Greeks. They worshipped a number of different pagan gods. There were many different pressures on the burgeoning church there, but none greater than the imperial cult, the pressure to worship the Roman emperor as God. Playing by the rules, the rules of Thessalonian society, could make you prosperous. Refuse to play by those rules and suffer the earthly consequences. I'm going to take a quick look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you're exposed to the word of God, but cling to the word of man, it will be painful. The word of God will cleave you from this world by whatever means necessary. And so those who cling to the word of man, to the world, will hate everything God's word stands for. If you've spent any time in the Old Testament You understand who Paul is talking about here. You know that God's own chosen people continuously got seduced by the promises of this world and strayed away from God's call to them. And they lashed out at the prophets who were proclaiming God's word. And this continued generation after generation, all the way through to John the Baptist and to Jesus himself. When the word of God was enfleshed, when Jesus came into the world to bring the promises of the Old Testament to life, when he demonstrated by way of his very life on earth 
that the word of God is true and trustworthy, this was too painful for the religious leaders of the time who had grown to love the power and authority they enjoyed in this world. They were unwilling to surrender their status in this failing, fading world for the status they would gain in eternity. Maybe some of us can relate. We would rather be the captain of the Titanic than a cabin boy in the new world. And so they opposed Jesus with every fiber of their body and they killed him, not knowing that there is no circumventing God's purposes and that even in their violent rebellion, they were fulfilling God's redemptive plan and that through their murderous intent, they were validating the word of God and God was ushering in his greatest victory over sin. These are the ones Paul is referring to when he says in verse 15, the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And Paul lumps them in with those in Thessalonica who ran him out of town for preaching to the church. That's verse 16. Those who drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Paul is talking about all those who are in league to prevent us from carrying out what we were created to do, from sharing the word of God, the word we sometimes call the gospel. Do you see that clearly in verse 16? They oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. It's important we discern what Paul is talking about here because the word of God can be twisted to devastating effect. I say this because during his rise to power in Germany, Adolf Hitler used these verses to stir up the German population and poison their minds against the Jewish community, calling them Christ killers. It's so important, it's vital for everyone to be able to read and understand the word of God for themselves and not let others tell them what to believe. That's why at MABC, we don't tell you to close your Bible and trust our words of men. We want to equip and give confidence to all present to read the Bible for yourselves and receive it for what it is, the Word of God. It's part of our covenant of fellowship that we just went through. Paul is talking about those who are in league to oppose the Word of God. This league goes on today, and they will oppose this church because they hate what it stands for. Because the word of God calls out their lies. You cannot be whatever you want to be. You will not be fulfilled by your career, no matter how successful. Pursuing your dreams will only lead you to wake up to the very reality you're seeking to escape. The fullness of the Christian life exposes the emptiness of the world's lifestyle. Think of the towering monuments that have been built in opposition to Genesis 2.24. Think of the scale of the world's opposition to God's word on sex. 
Think of the movie studios, sprawling entertainment complexes, and bars and clubs and casinos, the fashion industry, the magazines, the music videos, the lifestyle blogs and influencers, the dating apps, the divorce industry with all its lawyers and the political campaigns that all depend on you accepting the notion that sex can be used and abused, that it can be leveraged, it can be promised and given away and sold and bought, and all this without even mentioning the monstrous industrial complex of pornography. All these pillars of society crumble with one swipe of God's word. Merely one verse, and it all collapses into a heap of depravity. The world has way too much to lose to let you believe that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you'll be opposed. They'll try to evangelize you. They'll mock you, and they'll attack you. You'll be slandered, forcibly silenced for being narrow-minded, bigoted, and hateful. And that's just one verse. And that's just one of their idols. Think how much they'll revile you for believing what the Bible says about power. What it says about money. It's much too painful for the world to even think of relinquishing these idols. This is all they're living for. See what Paul says drives them. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. They can't get enough of it. They're hooked on it. They're addicted to sin. The NIV says they always heap up their sins to the limit. No wonder the word of God is so offensive to them. It is a threat to everything they hold dear. They will come after you with everything they've got. Unless, unless they let down their guard and the word of God finds a crack in their calloused, scaly armor like he did mine. I'll tell you, when the Spirit slipped past my defenses, he cracked my heart open like a coconut. And then it all went out the window. Career, ambition, dreams of riches, all flipped over on their heads. Praise God for that. I was freed from the bondage of those feckless sins. And the Word of God has become very dear to me indeed. But look at the end of our passage. That's not all we believers are saved from. The end of verse 16. But wrath has come upon them at last. There's no escape from God's wrath for those who stand in opposition to God's word. If the word of God is offensive to them, just think how offensive their hatred for his word is to God. God's purposes in all of this is to reveal himself to us. He wants to reconcile us to him. It's the only way that we can attain any kind of fulfillment, never mind eternal fulfillment. It is what we were created and lovingly designed for, communion with God. There is no peace down any other path. That's why the call is so urgent. Do not let the word of man convince you that you are better off forging your own path any path other than the one guided by the word of God leads to the opposition of God, 
leads to the wrong side of the one who spoke you into being. Do not despise his word. Turn away from the words of men and surrender to the word of God. Though we all deserve the wrath of God for being seduced by the temporal promises of men, Christ has made a way for us to withstand the wrath of man by setting our hope on the eternal promises of God. If you're not a follower of Christ, I simply urge you to surrender your life's ambitions over to the word of God. Christ has taken on the wrath for you that you may live the life you were made for. I have some homework for all of you this afternoon. Read about the beauty and the power of God's word in Psalm 119. Just one psalm. Some of you know. It is the longest psalm in the Psalter. Okay. (laughs) It's actually the longest chapter in the whole Bible. But it's so worth it. (laughs) Make your way down to verse 105. And stay in the word of God. When you read that verse, the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then do not deviate from that path. It is the path to life. Any other path leads only to death, no matter what the word of men might claim. So heed that verse 105 and stay in the word of God to ensure you never stray. Let the word of God guide you and lead you, disrupt you, redirect you, correct you, and reorient you. Eat, drink, and breathe Bible. Devour Bible for a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Read it first thing in the morning. Read it all of it, and read it every day. Read it wide, and read it deep. Read it to memorize it, and read it to meditate on it. Read it quietly, but also read it out loud. Read it alone, but also read it with your family. Write it out, print it out in those nice loopy fonts so that you can post it up on your walls. I mean, tattoo it to your skin if you have to, but do not neglect the word of God. Allow it to sink into the very fiber of your being that all may see plainly the transformative power of the word of God, which is at work in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving Maple Avenue Baptist Church a love for your word. May that love abound even more in us. Thank you for empowering your word by your spirit that it may be living and active in us, sharper than a two-edged sword, cleaving us from the tentacles of this world that would seduce us only to drag us into the abyss. Thank you for imparting your word to your people. Thank you for inscripturating your word into the Bible. And thank you for incarnating the word in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.